Lama Suryadas was one of the first teachers to make Dzogchen the highest reaches of Tibetan Buddhism available to Westerners. In this dialogue, he talks about his experience in three-year retreats, summarizes the core teachings of Buddhism, as well as the essence of its more esoteric reaches, Dzogchen. He explores some of the perennial issues and questions on the spiritual path and urges us to check out everything for ourselves because open-minded exploration of life and ourselves, he says, is essential for both awakening and wisdom. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I'm Roger Walsh, and our wonderful co-host is John Dupuy, and our guest today is Lama Suryadas. And Lama Suryadas has touched my life and the life of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world through his teachings, his writings, his transmission of Tibetan Buddhism, and some of his most profound teachings. He is a veteran of many, many meditation and spiritual retreats, including two of the traditional three-year, three-month, three-day Tibetan retreats. And he has been a very deep and dedicated practitioner of the spiritual arts and has brought a variety of practices to the West as a real pioneer. He was really one of the first people to bring the the real heights of Tibetan practices, Dzogchen, to the West. And his life has been about, as he said, his mission is transmission, transmitting the wisdom uh, that the Tibetan culture and Buddhist tradition accumulated over hundreds, in fact, a thousand years, and accumulated a vast reservoir of insight, psychological, philosophical, spiritual, into life and our minds and ourselves, and has brought that wisdom back. He's effectively what is called a Gnostic intermediary. A Gnostic intermediary is someone who imbibes the wisdom so deeply into themselves that they are able to transmit it directly out of their own experience and the language and concepts of the culture to whom they're communicating. Lama Suryadas has been a Gnostic intermediary and a teacher and a transmitter and a gift to so many of us. Suryadas, just a delight to have you with us. Thank you, Roger, John, everybody. Let me give my little thing. This is this is a big deal for me because when I was a young man on the road, uh, both of these gentlemen that are here with me today were very influential in my life. I came from a kind of a God-centric opening when I was a child. You know, I've kind of been along that line, but later I got into humanistic psychology and transpersonal, later integral. And, and the person that I say chiefly really opened up Buddhism for me was you, sir. Surya. I greatly appreciate it. And this this is a book that I, I've given it away and bought it for people a lot of times. If you want to know about Buddhism, right? You know, and you're a Westerner, this is the this is the book to read. And I heard some of your uh, conversations with Ken Wilbur that were just beautiful. And they hit me at a time that was just just perfect. So I'm very, very grateful that you chose to lead the life 
you've lived. Just tell about your yourself as a young man and how you you know came out of a Jewish family in the Northeast and you became, as your mom said, the Delhi Lama. It's just it's fascinating. It's very human and, and very personal. Just open my heart to you again going through the book. And I'll, I'll have more to ask later, but that's my what I wanted to say. Well, thank you, John, for that appreciation and for all you've done and are doing and being. Yes, the Lama, the Mama Lama started calling me the Delhi Lama in the 90s, and she got a big kick at it. But it's very appropriate, just in the sense of, I think I got my sense of humor from her. She's very smart and funny, witty. And I mean, perhaps equally important is she taught me to read when I was four. Of course, she was a school teacher, and I was the oldest kid. And I think reading and writing and perhaps talking has brought me to wherever I am. And I really appreciate that. And I'm still loving the written word, if you could call it that, and books. And so, on. in fact, I'm working on a memoir right now of my first India trip in 71 and 72. So it's appropriate to delve into the shadowy corridors of memory. I'm Jewish on my parents' side, as Ram Das used to say, but I'm Buddhist by choice and inclination and maybe even past lives, as some lamas like to tell me. It's a wonderful thing and a gift to be in the spirit together. I was by mitzvah, and all went to Hebrew school after school, went to college in New York, and then I went to India when I was 20, and I met my gurus and other people and spiritual friends like Roger and others that have been mentioned here before. And it's really changed my life, and for the better, I think. Well, you never know till the fat lama sings. <laughs> <laughs> but I met Eastern thought and philosophy in college. It was the 60s. There's a lot of consciousness experimenting going on. I can't remember if I inhaled or not, but I must have been there, actually, since I can't remember. Yes, as they say, it was a good time and also awoke my social consciousness and to radical politics and to the peace movement and other things. Then when I graduated, I went to India in 71 and met my gurus you know, not the first day or first month even, but eventually. And I was there much of the 70s and 80s. And it really changed my life and met many of the my great friends and lovers and colleagues I'm still working and playing with today. And I'm just so grateful. And passing it on and paying it forward is our mission. And that's the mission of transmission, but more specifically, paying it forward all of what has come down to us in this time and generation, century, now I have to say centuries, and paying it forward to the next generations and whoever wants it and is interested. As Buddha himself said, uh, he was a living teacher, of course, come and see. He used to say that at the end of each of his talks, they say, Ehi Pasako, come and see, check it out, see for yourself, whatever. It's an invitation. We're not missionaryizing and proselytizing. So that's been my life and writing and teaching and leading retreats and all is my vocation or my delight. Of course, during COVID, things have changed a little, but the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we're still in the gritty world with all of its problems. And the spiritual elixir is still one of the greatest, if not the greatest panacea for our inner being. Of course, it may 
not entirely be enough to solve all the problems of the world, but some people say it is. So I don't mind that way of thinking. The Bodhisattva, the spiritual hero, the awakener, the Bodhisattva, the compassionate altruist, definitely is working for the betterment, the enlightenment, peace, fulfillment, happiness, well-being of all. So it's lovely to be doing this. And, you know, of course, doing it virtually has become common, and we are starting to get together in person again as the pandemic relents. And I think we've yet to see fully or assess, even hear enough about the mental health fallout from the pandemic, more the economic and, you know, like the drop off of the education rate for the kids in the last few years and the family dynamics and addiction issues and other things. But the mental fallout, something we will have to deal with. And there's nothing better than a little spiritual elixir and some exercises and practical practices to help us in the body, mind, spirit, you know, in the heart and soul continuum. So I'm really down with that. (laughs) I haven't heard of it yet. Yeah. Well, you've been on that for some some time, <laughs> a lifetime, in fact. There's a lot in what you just said, and I'd love to tease a few things out. One, one just a one-liner it felt worth accentuating, and that is you said one of the core themes of Buddhist teaching is come and see for yourself, check it out for yourself. And I think that's a very important for me, very valuable perspective that, of course, isn't unique to Buddhism, but I I think to some extent, more so than other traditions, there is an appeal to direct experience and direct testing of the claims. And I love the fact you don't have to take any of the Buddhist claims on on blind faith. They are designed and intended to be tested for oneself. In the laboratory is one's own experience. So that's that's very important because the different stages of contemplative practice and spiritual life and blind faith is a pretty early one. And we all have to have some faith, but much more important is to be willing to check out claims for oneself. So to treat them as hypotheses to be tested rather than uh, beliefs to be blindly assumed. So that's that's one thing. Another is, you know, you spent 20 years in India doing these intense practices and and you gravitated towards Dzogchen and uh, your mission has really been to bring that to the West and you've really been a pioneer in that. And clearly this is, many people would say, this is the, the height, very height of Tibetan Buddhism. And Tibetan Buddhism, of, of all the different world traditions and I have to say that as far as I can see, the Tibetans, over a thousand years, they didn't create any decent art, any science or technology. They went inward. And of all the world's cultures, they turned in and explored the inner inner realms and created an inner science and discipline and spirituality that, to my mind, is at least on a par with any other I've found across the world. And yet, and of all the vast array of practices the Tibetans have, the numerous philosophies, profound analyses, Dzogchen is often regarded as the, the height, the peak, the acme. And that's been your mission to introduce this to the West. So maybe you could start by just telling us what Dzogchen is and what's distinctive about it. 
Dogen's definitely the best. I mean, you know, Buddhism's the best. Like every page of every book about the world religion says, you know, we're the best. So obviously I think it's the best, but I want to make a footnote to that, a very big one, that it's the best for me. Guess what? Best for me. Otherwise, guess what? I'd be doing something else, wouldn't I? I've looked around. I've gone around the world a few times. I haven't read all those books behind you, Roger, like you have, no doubt. Half of them were written by your wife and you. And I think I see Ken Wilber's, you know, few collected volumes down there too, shining. Zokchen means the natural great perfection or the innate great completeness. It points to the fact that we're all Buddhas, not Buddhists, God forbid, Buddhas by nature. We only have to awaken to that fact, recognize that fact, recognize who and what we are. Of course, this may be easier said than done. Let's not overlook things we already heard, like, John said he had an awakening to God in church, I think, to parse his words, when he was very young. Like, this is not that far from us. And yet the way we're brought up, it seems far from us. And religion over the centuries has sort of, I think, gotten a bit intimidated, if not a bad name, a bit intimidating. And philosophy also challenging, not so au courant today where young people are looking, as we know. And it's not new. I mean, the last 50, 100 years. It's, so it's, but it's not so far from us. We may feel far from it and whatever you call it to be. But it's never far from us, I promise you. And that's the message of Dzogchen, the innate one, great completeness. Yes, it's called the peak vehicle. It's called the summit approach. It's called a lot of you know, beautiful things, the clear light. I think of it as awakening itself or wakefulness. Awakening sounds like experience, but awakefulness is the way and the truth and the life and daily life. And, it, you know, like we hear a lot about the word mindfulness, which is great and has arrived in our shores and has so many different definitions. But I think mine is the best, obviously. Otherwise, I would say some other, you know, some other ones. And mine is mindfulness is the opposite of mindlessness, which anybody can understand. And what are the downsides of mindlessness, like at the wheel or with power tools, or even while listening to one's mate, family, or boss? Mindlessness does not further. Mindfulness does. And awareness is a heightened kind of mindfulness beyond just the conceptual mind. It's, I don't know, somebody calls it super awareness, meta awareness, a rig, we call it pure presence. It's not that different, probably from God's mind or God's eyes, cosmic consciousness, some people call it. The God, I mean, is like Meister Eckhart's God, not some outer person or bearded white man up in the clouds. Meister Eckhart, who famously said, and needs to be remembered, I believe, the eye through which I see God is the eye through which he sees me. Let's not get hung up on pronouns. Just It's so profound. This is the awareness we're talking about, total awareness, awakened awareness, awakefulness. So that's the essence of Dzogchen, that we're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to awaken to that, and that's the mission, that's the path. There are stages, there's gradual, there's sudden enlightenment, there's different levels of enlightenment or awakening experiences and epiphanies. But that's what it's all about. Of course, it's in the context of Buddhist Dharma or Buddhist Life, wisdom, and ethics, and altruistic action, let's say. 
the view of meditation and action of, of the natural great perfection, as we call it, which is very akin to its sister practice of Mahamudra. Just give a shout out to my friends in the Mahamudra side of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, also the ultimate teachings of Tibet, of non-dual awareness, of awake, awakened awakefulness. As Kala Rinpoche, a great teacher of Mahamudra, and definitely also a Dzogchen master, I mean, let's not get confused by labels and mere words. The great late Kala Rinpoche, Mahamudra teacher, the Dalai Lama, and things like that. Kala Rinpoche always used to quote the Laughing Diamond scripture, the Hevadra Sutra for you scholars among us. The Laughing Diamond, the Laughing Vajra, which says, we're all Buddhas by nature. It's only adventitious obscurations which temporarily veil that fact. So that's from tantric scripture, 1500 years ago, challenged, tested, honed in the fire of experience. And I think still good, evergreen wisdom, timeless yet timely for today. Does that not imply and include equality of all beings? Inclusion, room for diversity and tolerance and all the other postmodern things that we hear bandied about these days. But how can we be tolerant of diversity? How can we appreciate others as much as we appreciate our beloved child, mate, or parent, or pet, which comes down to it? That's the question I always ask. Being a Capricorn by nature... I know some of us may or may not believe in astrology. I'm winking at Roger there, but never mind. Roger's a real scientist. Being a Capricorn, I'm kind of practical, a utilitarian, so I always want to know how. Sounds good. We're all Buddhas by nature. What does Buddha mean? You're also ambitious and very tough, Surya. Those are Capricorn traits. Okay. So Capricorn, the point I want to make, John, is utilitarian, practical, climbing, Four feet on the ground, earth sign. So I just want to know how, how, if I'm, if we're all Buddhas by nature, how can I feel like drept most of the time? Drept, crap, and caca is not a question we might well have. If everything's perfect as it is, what the hell's going on around here? You don't have to be a weather man to know that there's a shit storm coming down. But that's not the whole story. So I try to be an optimist, like a, realistic optimist or optimistic realist and see the three quarters of the glass that's full, not the half that's empty. And you're pointing to a there in a major distinction between Dzogchen and a number of, well, perhaps a majority of spiritual paths. In most paths, there's the assumption of something to be attained or gained. or And yeah, Dzogchen, as you pointed to there, it's much more, the emphasis is much more on recognition. That's a very powerful, subtle, but powerful distinction. Well, yes, recognition, insight, sometimes called in some traditions, self-knowledge. What did Socrates say? And let's not forget Western philosophy also. It's not without wisdom, the father, the source of Western philosophy, perhaps Socrates and Plato, his disciple. Know thyself. That's the way to wisdom. So that's not a small matter. That's not a small matter. That's not enough to know your name, rank, and serial number, as they used to say, or your 
I don't know, Twitter handle these days. There's a lot, you know, deeper levels to finding oneself, like an artist finding one's voice, not just imitating the others and taking a picture of a Campbell soup can and thinking it's like art. I mean, everything is art in a certain level, if you look at it that way. But also with discernment and discrimination, you know, some things move us, touch us, awake us to a new way of seeing and being more than others or qualitatively differently than others. And we're all artists in the art of living, creating our lives. Everything's so subjective. And yet we know when we go to see great art, how much it moves us, how we're interested. Not that everybody agrees on that. Similarly, with finding ourselves and growing up. Do we really grow up and become a mensch or a true adult, a person, a mensch, when we're 18, 16, 21? I mean, it's a process. And similarly, with wisdom and self-knowledge and insight and recognition and recognizing the difference between the real and the unreal, the helpful and the harmful, the wholesome and the unwholesome karmas or actions, as Buddha called it. It's very, we need discernment and discrimination, not just a mirror-like patience or awareness that just reflects everything. The mirror is a nice image of wisdom, but there's different kinds of wisdom in Tibetan Buddhism called the five gnosis or the five primordial pristine awarenesses. And re reflective or mirror-like wisdom is just one of them. Another one is discerning, discriminating wisdom being able to make sharp distinctions and understand the difference between gold and brass. And that's very important to not chasing fool's gold and knowing what we can rely on or, quote, invest in. So in Dzogchen, it's all about the outlook or the view, not views and opinions, but seeing things as they are, the view, not just talking about shunyata, weakly translated as emptiness these days, but recognizing something making an exponential leap beyond conceptual mind, awakening to nowness, for example, not just being caught in sequential time, but the now, the fourth time, ascendant divine times, Christmas thought. Now, 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 and showing up fully, authentically. I mean, who can even talk about that today? And who has time to listen in our over-information age about authenticity, about finding oneself, about timeless wisdom traditions. So I think it's important if we're interested, if we feel it's incumbent on us to preserve and pass those on. And of course, that implies learning about it or looking into it and questioning and finding out for yourself and then experiencing it. And then going from blind faith, as Roger mentioned, to like lucid faith, where you know that there's a there there, even though you're not there anymore after you're exponential leap, you're a great epiphany, you're satori, your enlightenment experience, and, and going on to unshakable realization, let's say. And that's very important. I mean, it's not just in, in Buddhism or in the non-dual awareness, the direct access portals of Dzogchen and Mahamudra in Tibet. Rabindranath Tagore, the first India, I'm going to say India as an adjective, India, Nobel Prize winner, the poet said, what the hell did he say? <laughs> to know yourself is to know God. Yeah. And that's profound. And that's not just about your ego. 
oneself with a capital S, as they say in Vedantic tradition. The Supreme Self, the better angels of our good nature or whatever Lincoln may have said. <laughs> I mean, we find it everywhere. You certainly cut to the chase, and maybe that's what Sochin is about. But one of your, it wasn't a Zen slap because you're not a Zen. It might have been a, a Tibetan hug or something. But one time you said, do you want to be, do you want to be a Buddhist or do you want to be a Buddha? Oh, thank you. You know, and that just something cracked open again or a little more than before. And I wanted to, to me, you're a fascinating person. But can you tell us, like, what was your first big aha moment, your first awakening, your first essential thing that got you got you rolling, that got you on the path. And you've done this incredible dedicated thing. I mean, these three-year retreats, I mean, you know, I mean, some people, if you do a weekend retreat, we think, oh, man, we're pretty good. But but there must have been some some very powerful, essential activation of your Buddha nature that happened when you were a young person to start you on this path. And a man who can speak to us now an elder who has struggled and gone through all this and brought so much back to share with us. And so when, when did it start for you? It's hard to say. It's hard to say about beginnings and ends. You know, it's so cyclical. It's not just like, I mean, like, who is me? Who, what, who am I? What am I? The great evergreen self-inquiry question that I begin when I popped out of mommy's womb and I cut the cord. Where was I the day before? The week before, the month before, etc. And does it end when you draw your last breath? I think I read somewhere, maybe it was in Reader's Digest in my deep studies, that people <laughs> have come back after their last breath, so-called, you know, a, month, a week. I can hardly talk anymore, so whatever. People have come back a minute later, three minutes later, or some five minutes. You know, so theoretically, you can't live more than four or five minutes without oxygen, but people have come back from the Arctic Sea after being clinically dead. I've read for 20 minutes, things like that. So do we just die when we have our last breath? Where is the beginning and end? So where is the beginning and end of one's spiritual life? And you were kind of asking me that. So I mentioned learning to read, being by mitzvah. I didn't mention other important things that I mastered. And maybe there's a lesson in this about mastery that's relevant to us I think mastering sports or mastering baseball, particularly, I found out that practice is perfect and you just do it. Of course, practice makes perfect, but it's also play. I loved playing baseball every day, being an American boy in New York in the 1950s. And I got so good at it that I start to understand and have like an intuitive feeling like, if you know, anybody could do it. I can do it. Of course, I didn't end up in the major leagues and, you know, like I should have. But, you know, that's my karma. <laughs> I can still dream. Uh, and Maybe. It's perfect. And it's applied to other things. When I, I learned to apply myself to the few things in life that I have, it turns out well, it seems. So that's been a great lesson. And that gets to spiritual life, to self-mastery to how you live your life, to every moment counts, to you don't have to be perfect. You know, if I could bat three, four hundred like I did out of a thousand, that was champion level. You know, I don't have to be a perfectionist. Of course, you try your best every moment. And that, like, conditioned me. And also the team part of it and the sharing. Fantastic. Sangha, learning, 
So all that carries over into the spiritual life and my buddies and I'll say the people in my life, not pets, the people in my life are really the treasure of my life. Not just the great gurus that I was fortunate to meet. Well, my wonderful intact family that's still around the New York and tri-state area and we'll be getting together for the Jewish High Holy Day dinner or something in a week or two. I'm grateful. So practice, more specifically, I have to say the psychedelic gateway was important to a lot of the people so-called pioneers of our generation, of the spiritual generation, of the movement of profound dharma or transformative spirituality from east to west, yoga, meditation, tai chi, energy work, vegetarianism, nonviolent activism, from east to west, dharma, in a word. So I think that my first... I don't know. It's hard to talk about these things because one has associations with words and it's beyond words. But I'll just blurt it out since we're alone here, the three of us. My first experience, or dare I say, vision of God, because it wasn't really visual like some psychedelic experience. Or my first experience or vision of God, it's really the right word, was when I was in college and on LSD in the park near the Albright Knox Art Museum, famous for its mirror room, but we won't go into that story. The the Elmwood Park there, and with my college roommate, my beloved long, lifelong buddy, David Schneider. And I just, I didn't ever really believed in God. Yeah. I grew up in a secular, assimilated New York Jewish clan, uh, the, the sons of immigrants who run away from troubles in Eastern Europe. They weren't looking back for that and relying on those things, Judy, you know, traditional Judaism. So I don't know. I rocked it. I experienced it. We walked back to our rented off-campus house apartment with a few other guys. Remember, I was in college in New York and uh, University of Buffalo, actually, where nearby Bush, Sharon Salzburg, and some of our other friends went. And I didn't go out of the house for like five or six days. I didn't go to my classes. I didn't even go out in the yard. No need. I was like in it. I don't know what. I ate. I slept. I tried doing some watercolors. I was listening to music as I always did. I never did watercolors before then, and I never painted since. I never went out of the house. No need. Unbelievable. Rather than describing the experience, I'm telling you like the ramifications. And so then the next week I started school on Monday, went back, you know, to class, to like quotidian college guy life. But that really turned me around. Then I knew there was a there there, even though I wasn't entirely there anymore. But I knew, as I just said before, like 50, I don't know, six years later, I knew there was a there there. And that made all the difference. And that was unbelievable. What a blessing. And so that stayed with me. I guess I thought of it as God at the time. It was light. It was love. It was cosmic. It was all-inclusive. It was beyond belonging. It was being. It was being the one, beyond one or two or oneness. You know, we can talk about oneness to a blue in the face, but it's kind of dualistic thinking most of the time. 
concepts of dualistic themselves. So it's beyond oneness or nonness. And then I read about things and it all made sense. I hadn't made sense of the Bible and the Gospels before, of the mystics, of philosophers, the existentialists of Heidegger and the other ones, whatever, Kant and being in time and being time and the ends or the true essence of just being, even beyond or beneath or upstream from consciousness. I don't hear anybody talking about the ENS these days, the ENS. Look it up. I think it was Kant but my, who, who discusses that. I mean, who are we really, friends? Are we consciousness? What about when you're unconscious? What about the subconscious? And I know this is nomenclature. What about when you're in a coma? And coma people say sometimes they come back and they heard what was being said, but they were comatose. They couldn't respond. But somebody was there. The lights were on, but nobody seemed to be home. That's the teaching of no separate permanent self that Buddha taught. So I think that's a very, you know, deep stuff and experiencing it made all the difference to me. So that's very important. And the ants is there, even if you're in a coma and, you know, you're still alive, they call it. So the, the beingness, being, not dead, being. Maybe there's electrical, whatever waves in your brain and other things, you know. Uh, dead animals, and I guess people can have their muscles stimulated and their leg jump, but they're not alive. But if you have brain waves and you're breathing, you know, in a deep coma, you're alive. So who are you then? And can you just rest in that and be in that and replicate that death, ego death, even now in meditation, just dropping everything and sensing Presence with a capital P, beyond awareness, thoughts, concepts, just presence, just being. I don't know if it's being time or timeless, just being this, the ends. Very interesting. So I didn't have all those philosophical concepts, but I read about it and then I start to see it everywhere. This is a universal truth. Holy crap. I never thought I could get anywhere in religion or philosophy. I'm just a Jewish jock from Long Island, and I'm proud of it, love it. And yet the message came. And when I got, I went to a Zen retreat, and I went to encounter groups in Esalen and things like that. We did in the 60s. Chanted with the Hare Krishnas, went to Beans, explored a little more psychedelics and consciousness things. Very, you know, meaningful time. And when I graduated from college, I went to India to experience more of it, not just to study it in graduate school or write about it in my poetry notebook. And it kind of blew my mind when I encountered, I'll call them beings, but let's say people who seem to be there or live there, or they said, you know, Buddha taught or the, myst the mystics teach, anyone can do it, be there. In fact, the reason I'm writing my memoir is about if I can do it, you can do it, anyone can do it. I'm not the Dalai Lama. Mother Teresa, Thich Nhat Hanh, anybody special. I mean, look what Mother Teresa did. She wasn't born and recognized and raised up special. She was a diminutive fireball of God's hands in action, just wonderful. So we try to follow in that way. And it's very doable today, no matter what's going on in the outer world or social media. Of course, I don't need to mention the environmental crisis, the wars, 
the, the murders and, you know, a lot of other things that are going on in our society and in the world. We're all aware of that. But like Thoreau said, my erstwhile neighbor here in Concord, Massachusetts, I'd rather not read the news, but read the eternities. Even back in the 1820s and 30s, people were thinking like that, as he said. And maybe they were like the original American Buddhists, him and Emerson and a few of them. He said, I'd rather sit on a pumpkin than on a throne. I love that. How zen is that? That's awesome. <laughs> I'd rather sit on a chair, but, you know, I have sat on pumpkins and cushions and floors and rocks and bumps on a log, tried to imitate a bump on a log, but that's just one more strategy of quietism, not really finding great peace. Doing nothing is just another karmic act and you have to accept the implications and results. So the middle way has made a big difference to me, not all or everything, not all or nothing, not always, never, not fighting with my late wife, you always do this, you never do that, you know, those are red flag words. The middle way, balance, moderation, and of course, moderation in moderation, I mean, we've all heard this, but it's worth repeating. <laughs> not trying to walk a razor's edge either down the middle of the highway, there are a lot of lanes in the Highway of Awakening. Let's just try to abandon the ditches on either side. On one side, nihilism, nothing matters. On the other side, materialism, everything is just what it seems to be or measure, you know, quantity. You have to be able to see it or measure it or touch it for it to be real. But in between, life occurs. I mean, who can touch or measure love? Who doesn't believe, believe in it? Cynical as we may become. Definable, inexpressible, like the things we're talking about at the higher or deeper levels of spirit, of consciousness, of being. So I'm very grateful and happy I met teachers. They weren't all what they seemed to be. That's part of life. You know, Buddha said questioning or investigation is an important part of the path of awakening. In the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven ingredients of his recipe for enlightenment as he quote seven factor one of them is questioning or investigation so this is not a way of blind faith or dogma of extremism and dogmatism and so, and so on and it has helped me open my heart not just the lumen or inform my brain open my heart. Without that, I'd probably be a desiccated, old, kosher pickle in academia somewhere. <laughs> what a horrible fate. <laughs> uh, a kosher pickle, not even a good one. <laughs> a juicy one. Sorry, uh, you, you're such a fount of, fount of wisdom. <laughs> I'm just sitting here, just letting it wash through me. I know the easiest, easiest interview ever. You just, okay. <laughs> it's, been, yeah. it's been magnificent for me, by the way. You've really taken me to a really beautiful place. So thank you for yeah, yeah. Let's let's keep going together. I mean, that's why we're here and what we're doing. Yeah. Not, not in the podcast, but here in the world, and the world needs this. I think not to be too egotistical, just like it needs other things like sports and love and you know beautiful things and pets. It needs this. Timeless wisdom is uh, 
An endangered natural resource. Let's not lose touch with it. Endangered natural resource. That's a very good, good metaphor. And you know, you've just downloaded a whole stream of of wisdom. And I've been listening to you download streams of wisdom for twenty years, and I'm still entertained. <laughs> but this came out of a you know, this seems to spill out so freely and naturally, and it does. But it was also the result of a lot of deep investigation and exploration over many years and very systematic, very intense practice of one kind or another. You're one of a very small number of people on the planet who've done not just one, but two of the traditional Tibetan three-year, three-month retreats. And, and I can't resist telling the story of your first one, which I probably heard from you, if not from someone of... Uh, my understanding is uh, the way these retreats are done. You know, there's a high-ranking Tibetan, maki-muk, I guess you could call it in technical terms, who comes and does a sealing-in ceremony. And then you don't get to leave the leave the retreat grounds until the, until the maki-muk comes back three years, three months, <laughs> three days later to unseal you, except that it was on Tibetan time and the maki-muk arrived five months late. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, I'm sure you weren't counting days. Some people were who had, you know, like kids at home and other continents, (laughs) jobs or something, or old parents on the way out. But we don't say late, you know, I mean, he was important, Lama Himalaya. So, but he came every year and taught us. So we were well taken care of. And also by the resident Lamas, like Tukupe Mwangel. But yes, time is so relative, isn't it? Well, and you yet you did those, you know, the total of almost seven years in that continuous practice. And and of course you've done many other retreats, not only in, in Tibetan Buddhism, but in a variety of other practices too, yoga and contemplations of various different types of it. But since the three-year retreat is such a kind of spiritual marathon, and, and so since so few of us will actually do it, could you just say a little about what some of the main main things that you imbibed or awoke to or learned or experienced or were gifted with during that time? Stay tuned to part two as Lama Suridas explores how we can apply the perennial wisdom of the ancient wisdom traditions to the great issues of our times and the challenges we all face in these times. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.